Welcome everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. And I wanna welcome you to another of our online edition of the OHC's regular Work in Progress Talks. Work in Progress Talks are presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center on their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom and you can activate captions using the live transcript button. Uh, this talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and our YouTube channel. I'm pleased now to introduce our speaker for today, Julie Hessler, Associate Professor of History at U of O and a 2020-2021 Oregon Humanities Center Provost Senior Humanist Fellow. Professor Hessler is a historian of the Soviet Union with interests spanning social, economic, cultural, and political history. Her first book, A Social History of Soviet Trade, Trade Policy, Retail Practices, and Consumption, 1917 to 1953, was published by Princeton University Press in 2004. In 2010, she published a revision of Robert O. Paxton's classic textbook, Europe in the 20th Century. In today's work in progress talk, Professor Hessler will tell us about her current book project, the Soviet Afro-Asianists, Anti-Imperialism and the Soviet Intelligentsia. Welcome, Julie, it's great to have you. Thanks so much, Paul. Let me share my screen and then get into my talk. Uh, okay. Um, so I, I, I really thought about how to do this talk. I have a hard time with Zoom um looking at a formal paper and reading a paper and still seeming like I'm looking at the camera. So I thought I'll do this in a bit more of an informal conversational mode um, with slides that I'm just going to comment on. Um, and my thought is that I'm going to give more of an overview rather than as, again, if it were in person, I might go for a narrow paper that's specifically on the thing I'm working on right now. And instead, I'm giving a big overview of the whole project. Um, again, I really want to thank the Humanities Center, the Oregon Humanities Center, for everything you do to support humanities here at University of Oregon before I begin. And for me in particular, it has been such um, a wonderful opportunity to have this term to focus on my writing. I've been writing super productively, um, and it's such a great reprieve from online teaching for the last couple of terms. So. Um, Anyways, thank you to the Humanities Center and welcome to everybody else. Um, this is the title of my book project, The Soviet Afro-Asianist, Anti-Imperialism and the Soviet Intelligentsia. And what I put on the, as my splash page is a poster um, from the mid 1960s. Um, this poster was printed in lots of different languages in Russian and French and English and Spanish and Arabic um, um, to welcome visitors to um, an event in the Soviet Union connected to the Afro-Asian Solidarity Movement. And many of you are probably unfamiliar with that movement. Um, this was a left-wing international movement um, that tried to um, kind of like the, the most best known Afro-Asian event was the Bandung Conference of 1955, but the Afro-Asian Solidarity Movement, Solidarity sort of signaled that it was on the left, <laughs> um, was a left-wing anti-American version of that that tried to um, put forward the voices of decolonizing and post-colonial countries and peoples in Africa and Asia and to raise their prominence in the world, but to do so through solidarity and non-reliance on imperialist, neo-imperialist or US powers, uh, um, and instead um, mutual solidarity and reliance on the socialist bloc. So, um, as you can see from my title, that's a movement that I decided to use to describe a cohort of intellectuals in the Soviet Union who really became engaged with this anti-imperial project. Um, let me move forward if I can. Uh-oh, I thought this was going well. There we go. Um, to my next slide. Um, 
My project is really centered on the intelligentsia in the Soviet Union. I see it as a contribution to intellectual and cultural history above all. And so in terms of um, what I'm doing compared to uh, Soviet intellectual and cultural history more generally, um, I can say that there are some overlaps and some differences. Um, one overlap is the time period that I'm focused on and the way that this period of the 1950s and 1960s um, is sometimes seen as a time of Soviet rediscovery of the world. That's a phrase that's sometimes thrown about. Um, uh, Stalin had been quite paranoid about international connections, um, thinking that they could undermine the USSR and its socialist project. Um, and by contrast, after Stalin's death in 1953, the Soviet leadership was much more open to international interactions. Um, they were less fearful and more optimistic that they could shape the world by showing this shining example of socialist progress. Um, and so that meant that they were much more willing to risk bringing cultural artifacts and people from other countries into their country. Um, and they were more willing to risk sending their own people outside to other countries to as, um, you know, as cultural ambassadors um, to other parts of the world. Uh, so scholars have, in the last really 10, 15 years, we've known something about this for a long time, but I think that the historical literature has become a lot richer on Soviet relations, specifically with the West in the 1950s and 60s. And we, we um, I, some scholars have recently drawn a, attention to pivotal events that exposed the urban Soviet public to such new trends in the West as contemporary abstract art, um, jazz, new trends in jazz, rock music, um, and Western material culture um, with the Sixth World Festival of Youth and Students. Um, I've got a couple of pictures here sort of connected to that um, as one of the moments that really brought in rock and roll and blue jeans and things like this into the Soviet scene. So um, Soviet cultural history then has highlighted um, the way that those pivotal moments of the mid fifties led to an intense and ongoing engagement with Western culture. Um, and one of the things that they suggest is that Western culture became a factor in the progressive alienation of educated elites from the communist ideological project that um, the more Soviet citizens, especially of this generation, the Thaw generation that came of age in the late 50s, um, that the more they encountered things like Western um, rock music or modern art or um, new styles, um, the less committed they were to Soviet ideology. And I think that that cultural picture has its counterpart in intellectual history, um, which has very often been written as basically a history of dissent, that there was a Stalinist clampdown, and after the clampdown, gradually, you know, the Soviet Union came out of its deep freeze and thawed, uh, um, and uh, over time, Soviet citizens became, Soviet intellectuals um, became less committed to the Soviet ideological project. Um, obviously they're not all westernized, but the Western impact is one factor there. So let me move on to my next slide. Um, so where I'm with my book project, um, entering into this conversation is to um, highlight um, Soviet connections in a different direction. And I should hasten to say that I'm not the only person who has had this idea. There are a couple of other people writing just in the last couple of years um, who have gone, whose thoughts have gone in a somewhat similar direction, but I think I've got something new all the same. Um, and what uh, my starting point is that the rediscovery of the world, so to speak, um, was not just in connection with Western countries, but it also brought new opportunities for travel and engagement with non-Western countries. Um, 
I what I point one thing that I point out is that there's a different somewhat different timeline though with the non-Western countries. Um, cultural outreach and exchange with at least a couple of post-colonial Asian countries um, started a little bit before the thought, started in the start of the 50s or even the end of the 1940s. Um, but like the engagement with the West, it also lasted for a long time. It continued to grow and develop. Um, and the post-Stalin thaw really, as in the case of the West, brought a, a much greater set of opportunities, a huge expansion in the number of Soviet travelers who are often cultural elites or intellectuals to non-Western countries. Um, and in the presence of the arts and artifacts of those countries in the Soviet Union itself. So as I wrote here on my slide, travel impressions by Soviet authors, the artistic influences of non-Western um, cult artistic motifs and musical or, or aesthetic motifs, um, storylines derived from non-Western histories or cultures uh, gradually became integrated into Soviet cultural life. This happened over the course of the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and it happened both because of the increased presence of these cultural artifacts, um, exhibits, performances, films, and so on from um, post-colonial Asia and Africa, but also through Soviet creative artists and intellectuals incorporation of these motifs and themes and so on into their own creative practice. Um, uh, and then, an additional real difference uh, between the thought of the West and thought of the East in terms of its impact on Soviet cultural life and intellectual life is that unlike travel to the West, the engagement with post-colonial countries tended not to lead to, you know, inexorably to dissent. It instead tended to reinforce Soviet ideology. Now that's not to say that everyone they encountered in Asia or Africa um, adhered to exactly the same ideological positions that they did. But it is to say that instead of inviting invidious comparisons with the prosperity and cultural freedoms of the West, it um, travel to post-colonial countries often made Soviet people, Soviet intellectuals included, feel very proud of their country's socialist progress um, and to see socialism as a way of overcoming the very real ills that they encountered of the legacy of imperialism, of racism, of, um, but also of uh, pre-existing patriarchal societies. Um, and some of these things became, you know, really central in Soviet intellectuals thinking about those parts of the world. So, um, I, so I guess that, you know, having said that, I can the research questions that are really framing my book project shouldn't be a huge surprise. I I see myself as having um, two clusters of questions that I'm addressing. One is a cultural question. The, having to do with the impact of Asian and African cultures on the Soviet intelligentsia from the 40s through the 70s. Um, and I should say by Asia, I actually don't mean all of Asia. I've, I've decided not to talk about um, East Asia at all. Um, China in particular, there's, it's a very special relationship as anybody here who works on China will know. Uh, and there's been a ton of scholarship that really has focused on the Sino-Soviet rift and different aspects of the Soviet-Chinese relationship. Um, um, and I'm also not working on Korea or Japan. Um, so my, my Asia is a swath from Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and so uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, through um, Vietnam, India, um, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and so on, into North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so a pretty big place, a pretty big territory all the same. Um, understood it as post-colonial, very much so, by Soviet um, uh, people. So 
I'm interested in the influences of these cultures on the creative practices of Soviet intellectuals and art and creative artists. Um, and I, as I wrote here, one of the things that I'm also trying to, to trace or chart is the chronological arc of how those influences happened. I don't think it's all at the same time. There's definitely a growth development period. Um, I suspect that there's a decline, but I haven't gotten there in my writing yet. So um, the second set of questions is much more ideological. And it's also, um, you know, and there's an institutional side. Um, the intellectuals became involved in voluntary organizations um, that had an anti-imperial focus. Um, uh, such as the Afro-Asian Solidarity Movement. Uh, and so I'm interested in the ideological impact of both the interactions, the transnational interactions um, of these Soviet cultural elites with Asian and African foreign often intellectuals as well, um, how those interactions affected their ideological perspectives, um, how travel and what they see abroad affects their ideological perspectives, but also um, how their, how all of these transnational interactions um, and anti-imperial ideas um, shaped their civic activities, their, their activities as citizens. Um, so I'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, so um, I also have another major contribution that I see my project uh, as making is that my story is really aimed at diversifying the our understanding of the Soviet intelligence. Yeah, and here too, I, I have to say there are a couple of other people who have been working in similar, along similar lines. And yet, the picture that we have of the Russian intelligentsia, um, I think is uh, Soviet intelligentsia, I think is amazingly Russian, and in fact, rather narrowly centered on intellectuals based in Moscow and Leningrad, the two, the twin capitals. Um, uh, and so looking at anti-imperialism and non-Western cultural connections, brings to the fore a, a rather different group of Soviet intellectuals and cultural figures. Um, and that's partly just a matter of um, the Soviet Union's international posturing. The United States did something similar. It was always trying to send African-American jazz musicians to Africa and the Middle East and on these goodwill tours, um, basically to try to counter allegations, accurate allegations about US racism. Um, uh, and the Soviet Union didn't face the same allegations of racism because they were so, uh, their ideology was so strongly anti-racist, um, though that's not to say they didn't sometimes show some racism, um, but they didn't face the same international allegations about racism. But what they did face was um, suspicions that why should this country dominated by white Russian, you know, European Russians, um, should it even have a place at the table in post-colonial discussions? Um, international Afro, the international Afro-Asian movement, for example. Um, so the Soviet Union tried to posture it, and to position itself as, no, no, we're an Asian country by sending Asians to various Afro-Asian um, forums and to interact with um, Asian and post-colonial Asian and African countries. Um, but I, I'm not really so focused on the policy side of this. I'm much more interested on the, the, in the cultural side and actually the impact on the people themselves. Uh, what is clear to me as that these figures, which include, they include quite major people. Um, the, per, the man on the top, um, in my top photo, photograph there is Chinggis Aitmatov. He's a perennial uh, nominee for the Nobel Prize, a really amazing Kyrgyz novelist. Um, the woman on the side, Zulfia, an, is an Uzbek poet who is again, very widely admired. And there are a whole series of 
quite widely admired um, writers. Um, down at the bottom, there's one of the few Russians connected to my story. Um, you, can, you can immediately see who he is, uh, the guy in the suit, uh, Nikolai Tikhonov. Uh, well, I guess all of them have suits, He's, um, but still, he looks very Russian. Um, being hosted by an Uzbek writer named Ibek. At any rate, um, what I, uh, what I'm arguing is that these figures took the Soviet Union's project of anti-imperialism um, to heart to a much greater degree than their Russian counterparts. Um, and moreover, it was Afro-Asian events and anti-imperialism for them um, had a social side that that you know helps them create a, like a little community within the wider Soviet intellectual community. But it was a multinational, a multi-ethnic community of non-Russian, Asian writers and intellectuals. Um, and so there's a social side that it, of network formation for these people that Afro-Asian um, and similar cultural outreach to the developing world um, um, created for them. They, they're brought together repeatedly, they become very close friends. Um, and so, and I think that that friendship and the affirmation that they got tended to, again, reinforce their commitment to Soviet ideology. So what I've, uh, you know, one of the things that I argue in this project in my book manuscript is that a traditional story of the Soviet intelligentsia with its progressive disillusionment with communism as fueled in part by the attractions of Western culture um, doesn't capture the experience of Soviet Central Asian and South Caucasian cultural elites who, um, for whom anti-imperial ideology was very strong, whose cultural references were much more Asian than Russian or European, and who continued to feel very connected to the cultures and anti-imperial struggles, post-colonial challenges of the developing world. And I'll just, um, you know, I've got the picture right here of Zofia. She's one of the very few women in my story, I have to say. Um, but she felt immediate connections with women from post-colonial India. She made a close friend there, um, a writer, um, Amrita Pritam. Um, and, you know, they just, they had so much to talk about. They, they, this, um, you know, secularization and feminism in a traditional Muslim society that had a lot of patriarchy. They, I mean, they just had so much to talk about. Um, and this was an experience that many of the Central Asian and Caucasus-based intellectuals felt, uh, uh, that they, they felt these same kinds of connections as well. So, um, I'm not gonna to talk too much about this chapter outline. I just thought I'd give you a sense of what I'm doing in the whole project and where I'm at. This is, this is for Paul and the Humanities Center. I'll tell you where I'm at. Um, I've written the introduction, um, the first two chapters, and I'm in the middle of chapter three right now. I've been working pretty steadily. I also have a, an article related to chapter six, and I've been gathering materials for chapter four. Um, so I'm pretty far along in the project. I'm pretty sure that I'll be done with chapter three before the end of the term and have a chance to really delve more into chapter four. Um, but I thought I'd talk since I, you know, you never quite know exactly what's going to happen in those later chapters um, until you get into the writing. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about each of the first three chapters that I've actually written before turning it over to um, Q&A. Uh, so my first chapter, uh, it's kind of literary. The three people I highlight are all writers. Um, a Tajik poet named Mirzo Tursunzadeh, or that's the Russian version, or Torsen Zoda, um, the Tajik version of his name. And I've really kind of struggled how to, how to give their names. Uh, I am, I'll say I have a real limitation. I'm reading them in Russian translation. So I, uh, um, so I've, my, I've gone back and forth, I've multiple times changed all the names 
and then changed them back <laughs> uh, to the Tajik and Azerbaijani and Uzbek and whatever version, and then change them all back um, because I am making a point about their role within the Soviet intellectual community um, at large, where they were known by these Russianized versions. So I'm not sure. Um, they these three people are all really important to my story. They they um, they are some of the very first Soviet cultural emissaries to non-Western countries. Um, and they all became pivotal figures in the Soviet Union's cultural outreach programs through um, anti-imperial organizations. So Mirzo Tursunzadeh was the first uh, head of the Soviet Afro-Asian Solidarity Committee, a position that he held until his death in 1977 when it was taken over by Ibrahimov. Tikhonov <laughs> um, uh, was the again for decades head of the Soviet Peace Committee, which had in a, a you know, its peace had an anti-imperial component. Um, maybe I'll say something about in a second. Um, so these are major players in my story. They were already prominent by the end of the Stalin period. They'd won Stalin prizes for literature. They were um, well published. And they're, so they're some of the first people who wrote about um, post-colonial countries and in works that were widely disseminated. Um, the Ibrahimovs and Tursun Zadehs were immediately translated and you know, they won the Stalin Prize through Russian translations. Um, so they were widely disseminated, widely read, uh, and they were giving impressions of um, the post-colonial world in transition. Um, so I, as I say here, I take a life and works approach. Um, uh, they're all true believers. And one of the things that I try to get at is what are some of the sources of their belief? And I think at least in the case of Torsten Sadeh and Ibrahimov, I think there's a definite biographical component. Um, um, Torsten Sadeh, you know, you could think of it in terms of language. Um, he did speak Russian and read it pretty fluently, um, but he also, had um, memorized a store of Persian poetry. He could also speak Uzbek, Tajik's a Persian language. Um, he could also speak Uzbek. When he went to India, he was able to communicate in some kind of mixture of Urdu and Persian um, without an interpreter most, most of the time. Um, uh, he read, you know, he read about India. He, he, had it he he would when he went to Iran, of course, Tajik is very close to Farsi. He was able to communicate. Um, so there's a kind of a cultural side to this. And it, he also was steeped in a classical Persian literary heritage um, that spoke well through that entire um, South Asian and Inner Asian region. Um, uh, he and uh, Ibrahimov were both uh, Orphans of the Revolution, which is another thing I just wanted to talk about. Um, it's apparently kind of common for writers from Central Asia in the Soviet, in that first generation of writers to have been orphans or to have been missing a father. Um, they both were in a sense adopted by, in Tursun Zadeh's case, by an orphanage, a Soviet orphanage that then gave him education that he wouldn't have had available before the revolution. Um, and then gave him the chance to become a writer, you know, this. Um, so he identified extremely strongly with the modern urban secular culture of the Soviet, of Soviet Tajikistan. Um, in the case of Ibrahimov, his background is actually, if anything, it's more tragic. He was also an orphan, um, but he, he spent his earliest childhood years in the Azerbaijan region of Northern Iran, um, which has a huge Azerbaijani minority, what you may or may not know. Um, and uh, in the period 1917 to 1919, uh, Iran had uh, suffered a terrible famine and that some of which was centered right in that Northern Azerbaijan area. Um, and so, you know, he had, he was a peasant child. He worked in the fields from the age of six, um, but one after another, 
his family members died of starvation. So it's his grandmother, his grandfather, his mother, his sister, another sister. Um, and at this point, his father took the surviving two sons um, and they started walking north. Um, they crossed the Irani border with Azerbaijan and made their way north to Baku, where, uh, which is a, you know, a couple hundred kilometers, several hundred kilometers away, um, where they had an uncle. Uh, the father had a brother who was working in the oil industry. Um, but the father never found the brother. The father and the uh, the father and uh, Ibrahim's older brother both died, leaving him. Uh, they died of starvation. <laughs> um, so he made it to Baku, but almost immediately afterwards, he was left alone in a star period of starvation at the age of eight. Um, and for him, you know, he was adopted by strangers, uh, working class militants who believed in kind of working class solidarity, took him in um, and fed him for a little bit and helped him find his uncle who eventually then took him in. But then, um, uh, uh, immediately apprenticed him out to absolute drudgery. Um, and it was only with the real coming of Soviet power that Ibrahimov escaped all of that and started his, what he thought of as his new life. Um, uh, he gained education through Soviet power. Uh, he, um, again, started being drawn to literature and uh, was able to um, make this totally new life that he owed entirely to um, first the working class communists who had saved him <laughs> and second to the communist system that had seemed to give him these opportunities. So um, I think that this, this perspective on um, that we don't see in the same way from our more familiar study of Russian intellectuals. Um, this perspective of think gives us a different view of why someone from Central Asia or the Caucasus might really believe strongly in um, the Soviet ideological mission. Um, and sure enough, their works, and I mentioned at Xuanting's talk last week that uh, one of my authors, I'd used the term revolutionary melodrama, uh, Ibrahimov wrote this, his magnum opus was a novel about Iran that takes place in Iran. It's kind of the coming of revolution in Iran. Um, and uh, there's a very melodramatic aspect to it, but you know, he lived through a kind of melodrama. His life had many of these, had some of the qualities that he was, um, putting forward in his literature. Uh, well, let's see where I'm at for time. I guess I can talk about this chapter a little bit too. Uh, so what the first chapter does is it sets up one of the ways that Soviet cultural figures, really the first way that Soviet um, cultural figures apprehended um, the post-colonial world. And that's with what I describe as a trope of two paths. You know, there's an either or, either the bright socialist future or oppression, misery, feudalism, neo-imperialism, you know, that, um, and that, um, and that derived from their particular take on just a few countries. Um, so the Soviet encounter, as I wrote on the slide, with non-Western countries, you know, it happens gradually. And it started with a core of countries that were very near to the Soviet southern border. And I think that this is, again, it's uh, working on this project has sort of wrenched my thinking about the Soviet Union a bit, because I, I don't think of India as close to the Soviet Union if I'm thinking about Russia. Uh, but before partition, India was very close to Tajikistan, Torsen Zadeh's country. It was just eight miles away before partition in some spots. Um, and so there was a sense among the Central Asians that these were neighbors. These are 
countries that are not so far away. They're not exotic and distant, but rather they've got elements of familiarity. They're somewhat familiar and near. Um, and I think that it's these countries near the southern border of the USSR that um, initially shaped Soviet intellectuals' understanding of, um, of decolonization and post-colonial challenges. Um, um, and again, initially they're, they're in a way kind of patronizing. They, they love the cultures of these countries, but they, um, but you know they've got these two paths. Uh, and India might fall into neo-imperialism, you know, uh, um, or be mired in feudalism. Um, and the middle of the 1950s, I see one of the countries, one post-colonial country, is really emerging as um, the center of a love affair, <laughs> and that's India. So I have a whole chapter, I didn't initially intend to do this, but in India kind of emerged so strongly in my sense of what drove um, Soviet intellectual views uh, and cultural views of uh, non-Western cultures and countries uh, that I wanted to really center on it. Um, Soviet, this is a case where, um, you know, the Soviet Union had actually established some, a bilateral cultural treaty um, in the early 1950s before Stalin's death. And so India was poised. It hadn't really totally come to fruition until about the time of Stalin's death. But it, that meant that um, an influx of Indian art, artworks and film and so on started to happen before the thaw to the West could take hold. Um, so, um, India, you know, there's this, what I think of as a kind of an Indian moment in Soviet culture uh, that paved the way to Soviet, um, you know, intellectuals and cultural elites, greater interest in other parts of the world because they're so fascinated by India. Um, what I talk about in the chapter is kind of how that developed both from the perspective of Indian culture arriving in the USSR, but also how Soviet writers and artists and musicians and so on experienced India um, through the, the, first, uh, the first wave of cultural exchange. Um, and here too, I, you know, I couldn't help but be struck by the difference between Russians and Central Asians' reactions to India. Um, and I use a couple of painters as my main way of getting at that. This painting is by the Kyrgyz artist Semyon Chuikov. Uh, Chuikov, uh, had, he painted, he, basically in all of his life, he painted two subjects. He painted his native Kyrgyzstan, um, both its landscapes and its people. His most famous painting is probably a painting of a, a schoolgirl who seemed to embody Kyrgyzia's, Kyrgyzstan's um, striding towards the bright socialist future. She's got books in her hand. She's kind of confidently striding across this um, really radiant landscape. Uh, but his other great theme, uh, starting with his first trip to India in 1952, turned out to be India. Um, and it, it's, it was really noticeable. He actually lived nine months of a year in Moscow for several decades of his life. And he never painted Russia. He even said very explicitly, I don't feel that I understand it well enough. <laughs> but he painted India because he felt he understood it. He felt it was nearer to him. Um, he, he had immediate visceral reactions to India, that the sound, the music of India seemed familiar to um, Kyrgyz music and Uzbek music and Tajik music, the, the, um, the kind of the, the, the people on some level seemed familiar and he wanted to paint that. And for the rest of his life, he went back again and again and again. He eventually got a state prize from the Indian government because of his, um, as a, a sort of an intermediary between the two countries. Um, um, and this contrasted really sharply with 
uh, the Russian painter I highlight in the chapter who said things like, um, you know, the music of India, it's frankly unlistenable. <laughs> it's, uh, um, so again, there's just this very strong difference that emerges. Well, I've, I'm going to do talk about this one super briefly because I want to get out of this and leave room for questions. Um, but the chapter that I'm currently writing is the most institutional one that I've written so far. Um, and it was a, it's been a bit of a challenge. I, my project has gone through a number of iterations uh, as I've <laughs> tried to figure out what I'm doing. And I, I had originally imagined having a more of an institutional component and thinking of this more in the political social history um, vein. I wrote an article, for example, on um, African students in the Soviet Union and their experiences. And, um, and I, I just, I imagined having more of an institutional side to it. Um, so I've had, it's been a challenge to rework the research that I've done at a time when I cannot travel because <laughs> of COVID, um, to rework the research I've done to try to highlight the personal experiences of the members of my cohort. Um, and, uh, but what this chapter is doing, you know, so I'm, I feel like I'm managing to do it more or less. Um, cultural exchange was, connected to the ideological agenda of anti-imperialism. The previous chapter, the chapter on India was really much more about this cultural awakening. And this, this chapter brings me back to my second more ideological set of research questions. Um, so I'm interested in how these organizations um, involving intellectuals, um, both uh, they've increasingly served as as formal intermediaries to non-Western countries. They staged various events in Soviet cities and they provided this kind of cultural glue that I talked about. Um, and there, uh, I think, you know, one of the things that comes out of this for me is I've been struggling with how to handle um, an issue. And that is that I think that all of my characters really believe strongly in the mission of the organizations that they're involved with. Uh, and yet, the more those organizations actually do, the less the organization's actions really derive from the intellectuals and their motivations, you know, sincere as they, they were. You know, the more the organizations just start to function as part of this party state bureaucracy. Um, so there's a kind of a tension between a, a really idealistic mission and a bureaucratized party scripted reality that's um, one of the things that I'm kind of trying to get at in the chapter while at the same time talking about um, my intellectuals and their involvement, which is very substantial in these organizations. I thought I'd end um, with some pictures to underscore that these people have been neglected in standard intellectual histories of the Soviet Union, but they've actually resonated very strongly in their own countries in the post-Soviet era. Um, so Torsten Zadeh, the Tajik poet, chairman of the Afro-Asian Solidarity Committee, is he's got a 20,000 foot mountain named after him, he has a town named after him um, that was renamed after him. It's a town about the size of Eugene, in fact. And he has uh, his picture on the basic unit of currency for Tajikistan, the one Simoni note. Um, Zulfia, the Uzbek poet, uh, had an enormous monument built to her in one of Tash Tashkent's central parks in 1996. Um, another person I haven't talked about today, but who figures in my story a bit, is Rasul Gamzatov, a fabulous poet um, from Dagestan. And again, you know, these are very revered people. And so I guess I am. I think of my project as having several, you know, it's got lots of different layers, but, and threads, but um, there's a, an interesting way in which 
on the one hand, you know, I'm writing about the power and resiliency of Soviet ideology for these non-Russian intellectuals and creative artists. But at the same time, I am also writing about the inspiration that they drew from non-Western cultures and anti-imperial struggles, which they sometimes occasionally, you know, at least started thinking, are these related to my experience as a Tajik in the Soviet Union, you know? Uh, um, and those kinds of cultural and to some extent political engagements gradually drew something of a wedge, a very small wedge during the Soviet era. Um, most, they overwhelmingly wanted to stay in the USSR when the USSR was collapsing. Um, but they did start to drive a small wedge between them and the Russians um, that I think helped to explain the fact that they are so admired um, even in post-Soviet circumstances uh, in the Caucasus and Central Asia today. And that's it. Thank you again to the Oregon Humanities Center for sponsoring my research term and this talk. Thanks so much, Julie. Fascinating, fascinating uh, talk. Um, now I'd like to invite, uh, we're getting lots of clapping hands. I'd like to invite um, people to enter questions into the chat and I will read them to Julie. And we've already got a couple. Uh, the first is from Bryna Goodman in your department. And you might be able to anticipate where this question is gonna come from. So Bryna's question is about the analytic consequences of excluding China uh, from relevant conceptualizations of Asia and anti-imperialism in this period. And she notes it is of course understandable in terms of maintaining a manageable focus. Can you talk a bit about how China and Maoism figured into these intellectuals formations of anti-imperialism and on the politics of Asianism to the extent which they constructed an Asia that excluded East Asia, what images or ideas of East Asia justified these exclusions? So I would have to say that I'm uh, much more than my characters constructing an Asia that excludes China and East Asia. Um, you know, Bryna, you probably know, but many others may not. Um, uh, China and the Soviet Union were both involved in, heavily involved in the Afro-Asian Solidarity Committee. Um, the International Afro-Asian People's Solidarity Organization, which is based in Cairo. The three financial backers, <clears throat> three primary financial backers of that organization were the Soviet Union, China, and Egypt. Um, and they actually were all at loggerheads within a couple of years of the founding of the organization. But fairly amazingly, they stayed, um, it did stay together, it continued to work, it continues to exist today. Uh, um, but uh, the, the Chinese and the Soviets definitely saw themselves within a couple of years as rivals within that movement. Um, the Chinese were the ones more than anybody who were kind of insinuating that the Soviets were white and therefore didn't belong in an Asian forum. Um, uh, they, you know, and who's to say races so let's just say race isn't exactly a scientific category here. Uh, um, so the Soviets, you know, pushing forward their Uzbeks and Tajiks and so on. Uh, um, Maoism, you know, the, the Soviets in the Afro-Asian forums, they did meet a lot of resistance for two, for both from the Maoist position uh, that was um, basically that the Soviets had given up on revolutionary militancy. It's not 100% true. Um, the Soviets were always pushing peace, but their version of peace was an anti-imperial peace. It included um, the struggle for peace and um, the idea that a lasting peace could only arrive once imperialism was overcome. So um, there was definitely a justification of revolutionary war. Um, even within a peace movement. Um, and yet compared to the Chinese, they were very cautious. They were very, they, they really prioritized uh, avoiding nuclear war with the West. Um, so um, the Chinese outflanked them from the left in the Afro-Asian milieu. Uh, 
And then the Egyptians, you know, Nasser was very involved in this Afro-Asian movement and their stance was um, to provide, a, you know, whether it's a pan-Arab or a pan-African um, nationalist, non-communist anti-imperialism. So the Soviets are sort of between the two. And a lot of their jockeying for position had to do with how they're managing these two different, um, what they see as threats to the correct way. Um, in terms of my cultural, you know, in terms of my story, um, how does it analytically affect my story? I'm not sure that, it, again, I'm not sure that it affects the cultural perspective all that much. Politically, absolutely, China's really right in the middle of all of the Afro-Asian um, issues. Um, um, I think there's a bit, uh, you know, I guess what I would say is that Russians were pretty act, I, you know, the Russians took a, a sort of a leadership with respect to China um, much more than Central Asians. So insofar as my story ended up being a story about this, the diverse Soviet intelligentsia, um, China doesn't figure as prominently for them. Um, they're, uh, you know, the, the chief sort of China specialists, they're mostly Russian. Now this is to some extent also true of Africa. Um, so the initial Ch Africa specialists were also Russian. Um, and in fact, my, my first generation of Af Soviet Afro-Asianists, um, uh, had a hard time with Africa. They didn't really, uh, they didn't feel that same sense of cultural affinity and, and especially meaning Sub-Saharan Africa. They didn't feel the cultural affinity. Um, they tended to take a sort of paternalistic view. Um, um, so it's only several years later with a little bit younger group that you start seeing a much more serious engagement with Africa. Um, on the part of Central Asian and South Caucasus intellectuals. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I need to stop and answer other questions, but I'm not sure that I've totally answered yours for a future conversation. So the next question is for uh, Roy Chen from East Asian Languages and Literatures. And he says, uh, he was struck at several moments uh, when you mentioned the issue of belief among certain historical figures in Soviet Afro-Asian solidarity. In Roy's current book project on Chinese literary engagements with Russian and Soviet culture, he's trying to recover the category of faith and belief as a normative frame to understand the terms of possible transnational solidarity and not to denigrate faith as bad faith or false consciousness or political naivete, et cetera. To Roy, it seems that the very question of transnational uh, solidarity relies on the issue of faith faith in common cause, faith in possibility of translation, fidelity to a normative vision of the world. He's wondering what you thought about this issue of belief and faith in regards to your project. Roy, that's a really interesting question. And it's something that I haven't thought about it. I haven't used the word faith in my mind, um, but I have, I've really struggled with this issue in part because I've gotten responses to previous not so specifically centered on individual um, iterations of my work um, that have basically said, well, as everyone knows, nobody believed that stuff, um, which I am persuaded is truly wrong, <laughs> that the vast majority of, I'm persuaded the vast majority of Soviet citizens basically believe not necessarily everything their government said, but in the basic, uh, underlying premises of socialist internationalism, anti-racism, feminism, and uh, anti-imperialism. These, these were pretty easy for Soviet people to believe um, in a non-nuanced way. But, uh, um, and so that was part of why I wanted to plunge into individual stories and think about, you know, and. There's, a, there's an issue of sources here too that I've got to bring up, which is that, um, uh, you know, a, a devil's advocate can always say, look, no matter what they wrote, they probably believed something different. 
um, no matter what they did, it's not evidence. Because after all, they probably didn't really believe it. What they did and what they wrote and what they said, it's probably because they had to. Um, and it's really hard to refute. Uh, so um, I guess I have tried to find individuals for whom I have a rich enough sense of based on all sorts of um, both reminiscences about them and various kinds of autobiographical statements and watching them act in various ways and their writings and their this and that, uh, that make me very confident in their own positions. Um, uh, and yeah, I, you know, I think I've lost the track the, the track of your question, but um, other than to say that I, like you, think that um, some level of belief in socialist internationalism was, um, you know, was pretty necessary for them to have the encounters that they had. So the next question is from Ellen Herman. And Ellen asked, did these intellectuals engagement with anti-imperialist movements in Africa and parts of Asia have any broad or enduring impact within the Soviet Union or in the post-Soviet era? And if so, how would you compare uh, that impact to the impact of the thaw to the West? Um, well, insofar as the thaw to the West um, is generally seen as a factor that led to the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union, I have to say it was a lesser impact. The thought of the East had a lesser impact than that. Um, but it, it did have, um, so how do I wanna frame this? Uh, I think you can point, I can think of this in a number of different ways. Um, one is in terms of um, the specificities of daily life in the Soviet Union. Um, the Afro-Asian Solidarity Organization, for example, uh, um, created, it is constantly putting forward commemorative days for one or another country's struggle. Um, so, you know, con commemorative day for the struggle of the peoples of Congo or the commemorative day for a day in solidarity with the struggles of whatever. Uh, a day in solidarity for South African freedom. Um, um, and um, these things became very much integrated into Soviet life. They're very ritualized. Um, they involved speeches by, um, you know, members of the Solidarity Committee, such as my intellectuals. They involved speeches by experts by, and by visitors from those countries, whether they're students were studying in the Soviet Union or cultural delegations or whatever. Um, and uh, so the Soviet year is punctuated by these periodic, um, um, you know, one after another day devoted to something or else. If you lived in a, you know, one or another country, I think that that did help to acculturate people to a wider world, and also to the idea that their country belonged in the wider world as an actor. Um, so that's one kind of impact that I think that my intellectuals played a role, even though they themselves initially didn't know anything about Africa, they eventually became something of, a, of a, a, an intermediary between the Soviet Union and parts of Africa and, be, and helped to educate the public um, about non-Western countries um, and to acculturate the, the public to this uh, international, global, increasingly global posture of the USSR. So that's one kind of impact. Another one, and this one, you know, again, I feel like I haven't done the work on this yet because the point where I'm at is much more about um, Soviet people somehow drinking in the cultures and anti-imperial struggles and experiences of um, African and some Asian countries. But um, some other scholars who are working in a similar, along similar lines have suggested that these, uh, that the more they became acquainted with um, 
intellectuals from the post-colonial world, the more they started to think of their own countries in slightly post-colonial terms. Um, so uh, that is our colonial terms, I should say. That is, they started to think that although of course it's different and um, their country still represented a, a kind of modern socialist future, on the other hand, it's still dependent on Russia um, and kind of dominated by Russia in some way, to some extent. Um, so I think that those slight you know, and they're they're pretty subtle, um, but the hints that um, Central Asian and South Caucasus intellectuals found um, a lot of commonalities, not just with um, the you know the original way that they had thought about the post-colonial world was that that was like our past back before the revolution. Um, India today is like where we were in 1917, and now we're far beyond that. Um, but they gradually started to see that they continued to um, be in a position of economic dependency on Russia. They continued to, um, they, that there, there's, um, so they started to see that there were ways in which the post-colonial struggles uh, and challenges were replicated still in their own spaces at home. And so I think there's a, there's, a, there's a way in which culturally these intellectuals, and this is what I tried to get at on my last slide, culturally um, travel to the East, led them to consolidate their sense of cultural connectedness with an Asian sphere, Asian in particular. And then um, it also, I wouldn't say it greatly increased nationalism, but it led people to think about the position of their nation as still, still in the present, having colonial or post, or you know, having having a colonial residue that hadn't been overcome. So this is um, our next question is probably going to be our last question. So you've made clear in in your talk that you're. One of your major contributions is to emphasize uh, the diverse nature of the Soviet intelligentsia. This question, this questioner asks, um, did the local uh, Afro-Asian working classes, or to what extent did the Afro-Asian working classes identify with the positions that were taken by these Afro-Asian uh, Soviet in intellectuals? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, we, the uh, I, it's not something I've really researched to, that sounds like a cop-out, but I would have to say I'm not really sure, um, at least as regards the non-Russian working class within the USSR. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the working classes in other countries, have, there's a conceptual gulf almost all the time between the Soviet, uh, between Soviet intellectuals and working classes in other places. But within their own countries, um, you know, they were very much admired people, but how much buy-in there was with this Afro-Asian project, I am not certain. The Russians eventually, the Russian working class did eventually become pretty frustrated and also many Russian intellectuals and some Afro, of my Afro-Asians um, eventually became disenchanted with Soviet developmental aid saying that it could be better spent on our own country and why are we living so poorly when we could, when, when we're spending all that foreign aid abroad. You know, we've heard these same kinds of arguments in the US. Um, and that was definitely a feeling of some, not just workers, uh, but I suspect that it was true of workers and peasants and so on. In, um, in Central Asia. It was definitely a feeling that a few of the Afro-Asians, they liked the cultural connections, but they weren't at all sure about developmental aid because they thought it wasn't getting them anywhere. Um, they thought that they were ungrateful, those countries, you know? Uh, um, and so why not? The money could be better spent at home. Um, that's the only good answer I have to for you. I don't, I don't really feel like I, I can speak for um, working class engagement in the way I don't have the same kinds of sources that I do for the intellectuals. 
So thanks, Julie, so much for this fascinating talk and conversation. It's, real, it's really been a pleasure and an enlightening experience, I have to say. Um, I also want to thank everybody else for joining us for Professor Julie Hessler's Work in Progress talk. I also want to urge you to join us a week from today on uh, the 19th of February at noon for our next Work in Progress talk, which is going to be given by Fabienne Moore, Associate Professor of French at U of O titled The Formation of a Multicultural Mediterranean in Chateaubriand's and Byron's work. So that's a week from today. And for more information about the Oregon Humanities Center and our upcoming sponsored events, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks, Julie.